Good morning. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis 18. We'll be reading verses 1 through 15. And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves. And after that, you may pass on since you have come to your servant. So they said, Do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, Quick, three seahs of fine flour, knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf tender and good and gave it to a young woman, I'm sorry, to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. They said to the Lord, where is your wife, Sarah? And he said, she is in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? And at the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, No, but you did laugh. This ends the reading of God's word. Heavenly Father, I ask for your help now. Specifically, that we would pay careful attention to all that you want to say, all that you have said, all that you are about to say. We are grateful again this morning that you're a speaking God. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that there would be no spectators in this room today but active listeners and humble hearts. Father, we have not gathered here to be tickled or interested or awakened by the words of man. I thank you that that is not what you have called me to do. Lord, we are here to hear what you want to say. Because we do not live on bread alone. It's it's not the breakfast we had this morning or the lunch that we're going to have later on that keeps us truly alive. It is your word that brings life. This is a life-giving word. This is not a dead artifact. Your words are living and they are active and we pray that the active word of God would pierce our heart and correct our unbelief 
and awaken faith in the God for whom nothing is too hard. We pray, amen. Amen. I have been looking forward to this sermon. Because this is a short story, but God is doing all kinds of things in this. I want you to think about something with me, friends. And that's this, that a a relationship with God is not like a relationship with any other human being. That, That may feel obvious to you. Uh, But think about that. A relationship with God is not like a relationship with any human being. And that's true for all sorts of reasons. Uh, None of which more important, by the way, than the fact that God is the creator and we're his creatures. It's a big distinction between that. We, We didn't fashion him, right? He fashioned us. You didn't create God because you had an internal need and thought in your mind it would be great if a compassionate deity existed in space somewhere. He made you. He created you. And to relate as a creature to a fellow creature is one thing. To relate as a creature to the one who created us is quite another thing. And in the realm of human relationships it's quite likely that you will find yourself in a situation, if you haven't already, human relationships, where you are giving more than you receive. Okay, just do a quick inventory of your human relationships. Are are there relationships where you feel like you're giving to someone more than you're receiving from them? I think that's likely, so I'm just going to run with some examples, okay? A marriage relationship is often like that. A parent-child relationship is often like that. Giving more than you receive, and that's never easy. Never easy. That that requires something that we abhor. It's called sacrifice. (laughs) Unselfishness. And, And if a relationship where you are giving more than you are receiving is going to last then guess what? Listen carefully. If you don't know this already, this is really important, okay? That's going to require you building that relationship on something other than what you are getting back from that person, right? Do you realize that your relationship with God will never be like that? Never. Ever. Why? Because you, friend, will never outgive God. You'll never outgive God. You'll never find yourself in a situation where you have given more to God than you have received from God. Why not? I already gave you the answer. We sang about it this morning. He's a what? A generous king. He's a generous king. That's who he is. That the manifold expressions of his steadfast love are from everlasting to everlasting. Job 41.11, God says, Who has first given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. To which the Apostle Paul adds in Romans 11, For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. So all you math people out there, raise your hand if you're a math person. 
Yikes, that's only a handful. Um, I'm with you, in case you were bashful. I'm a math guy. So think of it this way. Our relationship with God is eternally asymmetrical. Asymmetrical. We only give to him from what he first gives to us. We're, We're debtors to mercy. And you will be a debtor to mercy all the days of your life. No matter how many times you come to church, no matter how many times you make a sacrifice to serve God, no matter how much money you put in an offering plate somewhere, God never becomes your debtor. You are always God's debtor. A thousand ills would be solved if we would not forget that. He's the creator who gives. We're the creatures who receive. And to the degree we forget that or disdain that or say, I'm not so cool with that, that is the degree to which our souls have become encrusted with pride. 1 Corinthians 4. What do you have that you did not receive? And if then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? I'm going to argue this morning from God's word that his generosity is on display in the first 15 verses of chapter 18. And the Lord gives Abraham and Sarai two choice gifts here. He gives them two gifts that make a claim on their life. And I hope you'll see shortly that God has given the exact same two gifts to us through Jesus Christ. So we're going to look at the two gifts and then at the very end of the sermon, I'm going to give you the claim. But keep that in mind. These gifts are producing something. They're going somewhere. So we're going to look at two gifts that are generous, giving God whom we can never outgive, gives to us. And then at the very end, what claim does that make on us? So here's the first gift. Gift number one. God grants us The gift of his presence. The gift of his presence, verses 1 to 8. Look at verse 1, chapter 18. And the Lord appeared to him, to Abraham, by the oaks of Mamre, as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. Now now listen, when you get to the heat of the day, like noon-ish in the Middle East, where Abraham sojourned, there's one place you want to be and one place only. It's also the only place I wanted to be when I was backpacking the Grand Canyon and 12 noon came my way. You want to be sitting in the shade of your tent. Trust me. You work early in the morning. You work late in the afternoon. You do not work in the heat of the day. You what? You rest. You rest. So why is that detail in here? Because it reminds us this was an eminently normal moment for April. If you would, this is Monday morning at 10.15 for you and me. Normal, routine, but it doesn't stay that way. Why not? Because of verse 2. Look there. When he lifted up his eyes and looked, three men were standing in front of him. Okay, now, as the reader, this is one of those places where in God's word, we know something because the narrator told us something that initially it's not clear, does Abraham know this or not? What do we know? We know that at least one of these visitors is probably the Lord. Because of verse 1. 
And Abraham's immediate response, it strongly suggests, though we don't know for sure, that he recognized as much. Okay, if not immediately, then, then certainly by the end of this whole encounter, okay? Because when he sees the three men, he does something that a man of his age, how many of you all are over 60? I'm not going to make fun of you. Just, okay. So put yourself in his shoes, adjusting lifespans, that a man of his age would never do. He runs. He runs. He takes off. He runs to them and bows himself to the earth in an expression of great honor and respect. Right away, as a reader, we're thinking, This is not just your wealthy uncle showing up. Something else is going on here. And then look at verse 3. What does Abraham say? Oh, Lord. In Hebrew, that's Adonai. That's a word that is consistently used throughout the Old Testament in reference to God. Not my Lord, oh, Lord. If I have found favor in your sight, he says. You know the last time that phrase, favor in your sight, showed up in Genesis? It was spoken over Noah. Genesis 6, 8. But Noah found favor or found grace in the eyes of the Lord. So, so as Noah experienced God's grace before the judgment of the flood in Genesis 7. So now we're we're starting to recognize something's going on here. And I think what's going on is Abraham is going to also receive grace and favor from God before the judgment of Sodom in Genesis 19. So how do we know Abraham found favor? If I have found favor, how do we know that? Because the Lord grants Abraham's request. Look back at verse 3. Oh Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. What's Abraham asking for? Quite simply, he's asking for the gift of God's presence. That's what he's asking for. And the fact, look back at verse 3. Details matter, church. The fact that the your in verse 3, oh Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, is singular, while the yours in verses 4 and 5 are plural, tell us that there is one visitor. He is especially eager. To see linger and stay and honor him with his presence. Who's that? It's, it's the Lord. It's Yahweh. If you look ahead at verse 22, chapter 18, it proves as much. So the men turned from there and went towards Sodom, the two men, but Abraham still stood before the Lord. Or look at Genesis 19.1. We're given the identity of these two men when we read 19.1. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening. So we don't get all the information up front, but if you read ahead, it becomes very clear. Three visitors, one is the Lord, and two of them are angels. So the Lord, revealed in human flesh, appears to Abram with two angels on a very ordinary day. And what does Abraham request? Look at verse 4. Do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves. And after that, you may pass on since you have come to your servant. A man 
It's asking his creator for the gift of his presence. That's what's going on. And what do they say? What does the Lord and his two angels say? So they said, do as you have said. Think, think about that. Think about that. The God who created the world and everything in it, he didn't stop with giving Abraham incredible promises of, of offspring and land and blessing and favor in the sight of God and man. He didn't stop with that, right? He reveals his favor. He makes known the depth and intimacy of his covenant relationship with Abraham by coming to eat with him. God wanted to eat with a man. And throughout the Bible, eating is what? What's it? It's an expression of fellowship, an expression of peace, a sign of relational commitment. And that, and that not merely between a creature and his fellow creature, but between the creature, man, and God. Eating is an expression of, of fellowship with God. So think about this, some examples. Exodus 24, the elders of Israel eat with the Lord on Mount Sinai, celebrating the covenant with the people. Leviticus 3, the Lord instructs all the Israelites to eat the peace offerings in the sanctuary of the temple. Okay, celebrating their relationship with God. Matthew 26, Jesus, the Son of God, does what? Establishes the Lord's Supper, communion, a meal that assures us of peace with God through faith in Christ. And, and Revelation 3, Jesus uses the metaphor of eating to, to invite the church in Laodicea to intimate relationship with him. And how does Revelation 19 describe the final union of God with his people at the end of the age? It's going to be a what? A wedding supper. We're going to have a kick in one of those next Sunday night, by the way, for some of us, with Christopher and Serena's wedding that I am so excited about. But, but do you realize the fact that we eat at weddings, it, it's not just a random American tradition. There is something in eating in this world God has created that expresses fellowship, communion, relationship, intimacy, not just between man and man, husband and wife, but between all of us and our creator. The gift the Lord grants Abraham here and Genesis 18 is the same gift he's been seeking to give his people ever since Adam and Eve were exiled from that garden. What's that? The gift of his presence. The gift of his presence. It's the gift of intimate relationship and fellowship with our creator. So we are meant at this point, church, to be astounded and amazed and humbled that the creator of the universe would come and eat in the shade of Abraham's tent. That's crazy. We have to feel the force of that. But you know what's even more astounding? More incredible? And well nigh impossible to fathom. And the word became flesh. 
and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, John 1.14, full of grace and truth. Friends, friends in Genesis 18.1, the Lord appears to Abram. And in Genesis 18.33, the Lord leaves Abram. You know what the Lord did thousands of years later when Jesus was born and lived among us? He came and he stayed for good. For good. There's no moment in Acts where you will ever read and the Lord and his presence left again. That leaving happens to Abraham and the saints of old over and over he comes and then he goes. He comes and then he goes. When Jesus comes, he stays. He stays? But I grew up in the church, Matthew, and I'm pretty sure if I got my facts and like Bible literature history right, Jesus ascended after his resurrection. Stayed? Ascended. Which one is it? Well, you know what he gave us after he ascended? He poured out the Holy Spirit. God the Spirit. He gave us God the Spirit. John 14, 16, Jesus says, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. Guys, you know him. For he dwells with you and will be with you. I will not leave you. Christian, hear that. I will not leave you, says your Lord, as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more. But you will see me. Okay, now at this point, you might be thinking, Jesus is psycho. Which one is it? I mean, how is it that the world can't see me, but you guys are going to, I mean, is it like, here, everybody take their virtual reality goggles. I mean, how is that going to happen? How is it that the rest of the world can't see Jesus, but those who trust and obey him as the son of God will see Jesus? Well, the answer to that, friend, is that we, the people of God, those who trust and obey Jesus, that's what it means to be his people. You don't get to become his people by showing up on a Sunday, though I'm grateful you're here. You're God's people if you trust and obey Jesus. We see him in the sense that the Holy Spirit who indwells us, lives with inside of us, reveals and makes known God's presence to us. Not, not as some sort of like pointer. Hey, don't forget, God's presence is up there somewhere. Look at it. Isn't that cool? No. With you, God Emmanuel, dwelling, living, tabernacling, temple inside of you, Christian. He's with you, and through the gift of the Spirit, every Christian gets to experience and enjoy for their entire life what Abraham got for one afternoon. That's amazing. That's amazing. Okay, so, so listen to me very carefully here. When the Word of God says all over the place, the Lord speaking, I am with you. I am with you. 
I am with you. He's not giving you some throwaway party favor. It's not like, I know it would be great if a husband was with you, but, you know, consolation prize. At least you got me. You know, it's not like, son, I know you lost the sports game, but, but you know, good sportsmanship all around. It's, it's not a consolation prize. The presence of God is the best gift your creator could ever give you ever give you. Why? Because in his presence, Psalm 16, there is fullness of joy. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. Pleasures you will not find in this world. And so so we long for heaven, right? Where we're going to see Jesus face to face. But you know what we're not waiting for to enjoy in heaven? It's the presence of God. And by the way, though he's uniquely present when his people gather, he doesn't pack up his tent and, and chill until we get back here. That's why this building isn't sacred. It's a gift, but it's not sacred. With you. Holy Spirit. With you. First gift God gave Abraham was the gift of his presence. He gave a man the honor, think about this, of preparing a meal for the Lord himself. Translation, Abraham got to practice hospitality for the king of kings. And while what I'm about to say isn't the main application of this passage, what's the main application here? Be amazed and thankful and full of joy that God in Jesus Christ has come not to stay and go, but to stay and be with us. That's the main application. But I think there's another application here that's important and helpful, and and that's this. Do you realize we too get to do what Abraham did? We too, you too, Christian, get to practice hospitality for the king of kings. What do I mean by that? Matthew 25, 34 is what I mean by that. Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, Jesus said. And you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, you visited me. I was in prison, you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you a drink? And when did we see you a stranger? And welcome you, or naked and, and clothe you? And, and when did we see you sick? We're in prison and visit you. And the king will answer them. Truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Brothers and sisters, our our practice of hospitality that feels so ordinary, so earthy, using our homes, our limited food, small or great, our resources to express God's love to other people is not an optional exercise. It's not, okay? It is the basis 
by which the people of God are separated by King Jesus on his judgment seat from the people of the world. What's the difference? Hospitality. Feel the force of that. And if you need even more encouragement, hospitality is the first confirmation Genesis gives us that Abraham was doing exactly what God commanded him to do back in Genesis 17 verse 2 where God said to the guy, walk before me and be blameless. After Abraham is circumcised, what's what's the very next thing Genesis holds forward as as proof that Abraham is walking before the Lord and being blameless? It's his practice of hospitality. Think about that. It's that important in the kingdom of God. And the Lord does not say, if you're a good cook, practice hospitality. Or if you have a really nice house, practice hospitality. Or if you have a lot of money to buy food, practice hospitality. Or if it's easy and convenient and fits into your ideal weekend schedule, consider practicing hospitality. No, what what does the Lord tell us? Romans 15, 7. Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. For the glory of God. So so when we do that, when we invite people into our homes, people that we don't know, people that we do know, and love them with whatever the Lord has entrusted to us, this is what's going down, okay? We are living out and demonstrating the fellowship that we have with God through Christ, through the fellowship that we extend to one another. That's why hospitality matters, because it is an expression of the fellowship and intimate relationship we have with God himself who is with us. When you open your home to practice hospitality, you are extending, you are expressing the with us character of your God. It's not a gifted thing. It's not a, I'm an extrovert thing. It's not a I just love getting up crazy early on Sundays to make all kinds of food thing. I'm weird, I know. It's it's not a, I'll keep practicing it if it gets practiced back to me thing. It's a presence of God thing. Remember that, church. And I want to honor you, and I mean this, for nearly 30 years of practicing hospitality. You know, next April, we're going to be 30 years old. That's crazy. Church got started when I was five. It's amazing. And as I have the privilege of doing new member interviews to this day, I mean, you guys remember a couple months ago, we had a whole group of new members that the Lord added. When I asked them, why, how did you know that King Jesus was adding you to this body, you know what they say almost universally? They point to some practice of hospitality. One of you who didn't let them get out that door without running like Abraham. (laughs) Good morning. How are you? Who are you? I'm Matthew. I don't know you, and I'm an introvert, and so this is awkward, and I'm hoping that you keep talking because I'm out of questions now, but would you like to come over and have lunch with me, and hopefully God will give us more things to talk about? (laughs) When it feels ordinary, when it feels awkward, when you think, surely that couple is like the hospitality gurus, so I'll just let them do their thing. God is calling. 
And God is saying to you, I'm the same God today that I was years ago. And some of you need to hear that. Though you are older, you're aging, and hospitality is harder and more difficult, don't stop season saint. Some of you are younger, and you are selfish. (laughs) I can relate to this. And you only do things in your life that fit into your schedule. And you never make commitments because at the last minute, a better option could open up. You can't live like that and practice any sort of coherent hospitality, by the way, typically. So what is God calling you to do? To respond to the gift of his presence with you by extending that gift of fellowship to the people around you, even if you get not a single RSVP until the hour before lunch. Remember that. God has granted us the gift of his presence. And we put legs on that through hospitality. Second gift, gift of his presence. God gives us the gift of his promise. Two gifts, gift of his presence, gift of his promise. Okay, this is where we're looking at verses 9 through 15. So, quick review. In many ways, the meal that we first saw in the first part, it's just setting the stage for a message that God wants to give this couple in the second part. So look at verse 10. Look at verse 10. The Lord said, Abraham, I will surely return to you about this time next year. And Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. I mean, I read that this week, and and truth be told, here's my first thought. I already preached about that promise. I have nothing left to say. (sighs) Enough with it, Lord. Like, you told him. Okay, okay, we get it. You told him, you know, 12, 15, 17, here again at 18. I get it. Okay, repeat after me. You'll have a son. And then it dawned on me. Maybe there's a reason God is repeating himself. Maybe. (laughs) Because it's not a new word, right? I mean, the the Lord already promises much to Abraham. If you you doubt me, just look back at, you know, Genesis 17. So why does he come back to reaffirm the same promise? Well, here's the reason. We'll look at this carefully here. It's because, church, he's a God who knows our unbelief. He's a God who loves us enough to rebuke and correct our unbelief. And he's a God who also loves us enough to repeat his promise and reaffirm his promise and remind us of his promise to nurture our faith. He knows our unbelief. He rebukes our unbelief. He nurtures our faith. Let's look at each one of those. First, he knows our unbelief. If you're reading verse 10 and you're kind of flying by like, It's easy to do when you're reading God's word, but dangerous. You can miss the fact that there's a lot of tension in here, and and it's kind of palpable. So so when the Lord is affirming his promise to give them a son, Sarah is is listening at the tent door behind him. Okay, it's as if she has, for some of us, you know, the the password to his social media account. And so she's just able to eavesdrop on everything that's going down, all the messages, everything. But back then, they just did it by hiding behind tent doors. So, 
You get that, okay? So that's what's going on. And when she hears the Lord's promise, what does she do? She laughs. But God is careful to tell us that she laughs just like Abraham did in verse 17. Look at verse 12. Chapter 18. She laughed to herself. She didn't like break out chuckling and roll around on the floor. She, she laughed to herself. She's exactly what Abraham did back in Genesis 17. Why? Look at verse 11. Why? Because Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years, and the way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. She was after the age of menopause. Verse 12, after I am worn out and my Lord is old. It's not disrespectful, it's just honest. Shall I have pleasure? Shall I conceive? Let me, let me translate that for you, okay? Sarah is saying, getting pregnant is not just difficult or hard for me. It is a biological impossibility. This isn't one of those, maybe if I get some help from a fertility clinic, I could conceive. This is, my human body is utterly incapable of conceiving. Fact. Period. Done. So she laughs. There's no one. <laughs> Gordon Wenham writes this. She laughed not out of cocky arrogance. See if you can relate to this. But because a life of long disappointment had taught her not to clutch at straws. Hopelessness, not pride, underlay her unbelief. Hopelessness. Now look at verse 13. And the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh? Remember, she's behind the door of the tent. She didn't laugh aloud, but the Lord knew. Why? Because she couldn't hide her unbelief from her creator. That's why. The Lord wasn't just with Abraham and Sarah, okay? He knew them intimately, even better than they knew themselves. Psalm 139.4, even before a word is on my tongue, still kicking around on my mind, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. Friend, if you, if you are doubting God right now, if you're drifting down the path of unbelief, if you hear the word of God, either as you're reading it or as it's preached to you, and you think, that's impossible. That's impossible. God can't do that. Look at, look at my life. Okay, Pastor Man, I know you're all excited on stage, but you don't know me. Look at my life. I've missed my chance. I won't ever have what all these Christians around me have. So I guess I'll just keep showing up to church on Sunday morning to make the wife happy and flashing a smile whenever anybody shakes my hand. But what you don't know about me is that I'm not sure I believe this God anymore. Friend, if that's you, I have one word to say to you. You cannot 
fool the Lord. You can't fool him. You might fool us. You might fool her. You might fool me. You cannot fool him. You can't fool him. The Lord who made you and is right now with you knows exactly where you are struggling to trust him. Exactly. Struggling to believe that that he will do what he's promised to do, that he will deliver you, that he will provide for you, that he will keep you from stumbling. So, So stop trying to hide from him. Listen to him. Stop trying to hide. Listen to him. Why? Because he doesn't just know our unbelief, he rebukes our unbelief. He rebukes it, he corrects it. I think sometimes when you first catch yourself consciously denying or doubting the the word of God, wondering if it's all really true, it's actually kind of scary. Maybe you've experienced this. The the thought comes in your mind seemingly out of nowhere. Maybe all this Jesus stuff is just a charade. Maybe all these people, I mean, they're really nice, but, but maybe they just all got collectively conned. And you immediately freak out. I mean, I've had these thoughts come through my mind. I'm preaching this word every week. Lord, Lord, is it really all true? Snap out of it, Williams. Where's your faith? But for some of us, those thoughts don't flash by. They come in and they stick. And, and weeks turn into months, and months turn into years, and before too long, you can't remember the last time you really trusted the Lord. All you see are material obstacles to faith, cold, hard facts of your life that's, that seem like an impregnable fortress against ever receiving anything good or beautiful from the hand of God. Wall. You you don't read his word. You don't really want to hear his word. Hopelessness is filling your heart. And and it's just squeezing out the last remnants of faith. In that situation, friend, this is what you need, okay? You need an exceedingly gracious and merciful gift from God called the gift of conviction. The gift of conviction. You need the Holy Spirit to turn on the lights, as it were. Okay? And help us see what's really going on. To help us see that we're sinning. We've sinned. We've assigned more authority to what we can see with our eyes than to what God has said with his mouth. We've chosen the path of unbelief. The problem, hear me, is not simply that your interest in spiritual things are waning and so you should listen to some more worship music. The problem is that you are rejecting the word of God and in so doing, you are rejecting God himself. And that gift, to see that, the gift of rebuke and correction, that that is one of the most precious gifts God can ever give you when you were mired in doubt and wandering down the path of unbelief. You know why? Because unless God gives you that gift, you will never repent of that unbelief. Because you're blind. You, You won't see it for what it is. You'll just find your heart wandering and best of luck with God. How did I get over here? We need God in his grace to correct us. 
to rebuke us so that we can see our unbelief for what it is and have an opportunity to turn from it for what it is. We, we need help to see the choice where before it felt like there was no choice. So what does God say to Sarah to correct her, to get in her face, to deliver her? Sarah, why did you laugh? It's as though she's drifting on the path of unbelief and God just like, Sarah, stop, stop. Look at me, look me in the eyes. Question one, Sarah, remember me? Why did, why did you laugh? It's God's kindness that asks that question. It's his kindness. He, he doesn't just know our unbelief and, and let us run downhill in it. He loves us enough to rebuke and correct our unbelief, to get in our face. Sometimes he does that through other people around us that we really wish would go away and stop texting and emailing and saying they're concerned for our souls. But that's God. And you write them out and you unfriend them and you refuse to answer their calls to the peril of your soul, Christian. We need correction when we're stuck in unbelief. And I got corrected last weekend. Yeah, for real. (laughs) I was in my office going over my notes to prepared to preach last week's sermon and I sat down in my chair and immediately I felt so weak. And I said to the Lord in my own mind, not aloud, I can't do this. I don't want to do this. What kind of idiot would want to get up on stage and pretend to speak the words of God? I can't do this. I'm not good enough strong enough. I'm too fearful. I'm too young. I I can't do this. And then you know what happened when I looked down at my desk where my phone was sitting there? A text message showed up two seconds after I opened my eyes. And it was my brother John Shea, who's a pastor at the Sovereign Grace Church in Charlotte. And it read this, hey bro, you came to mind this morning. So I'm praying for you and Kingsway. Trust God to use his word to do his work today. Grateful for you, bro. John Shea. I had not heard from John in a year. And that was the moment when the Lord Jesus Christ in his great love, like he did with Sarah, why are you laughing, Matthew? Look at me. You're stuck in unbelief and you need to repent. It's a gift, friends. It's such a gift. God knows our unbelief. He rebukes our unbelief. Last point under this gift of a promise He nurtures our faith. He nurtures our faith. Look back at verse 13. Verse 13, okay? The Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Why did Sarah laugh? Can we just stop and praise God that he didn't stop there with that word of correction? 
He didn't stop there. I mean, he had a right to, right? But by this point, the Lord had given Abraham and Sarah promise after promise. It wasn't like he had lacked for assurances of faithfulness, okay? Because he told Abraham, what? Abraham, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to give you descendants. I'm going to give you as many descendants as stars in the sky. I'm going to give you all a great land to live in. I'm going to be your descendants, God. I'm going to be your God. I'm going to give you kings. And by the way, through you, all the nations on earth will be blessed. And check this out. I'm going to make a world-changing covenant that you've never seen before that proves all of this is true for you. God didn't owe him a reminder. But what does he know about Abraham and Sarah? It's the same thing he knows about us. He knows our unbelief. He loves us enough to rebuke us. And so so with a single question, a soul-piercing, faith-nurturing question, look at verse 14. The creator of the world says this to the dying, aging couple. Is anything too hard for the Lord? I don't want you to answer that question quickly. I'm not going to go off on how exciting that is quickly. Because we need to linger on that. Okay? We need to think about this. Slow, slow down. I'm not interested right now in what you think you're supposed to say with your mouth. I am interested, more importantly, your God is interested in what you were saying through your life over the last week. And in the quiet of your own mind. What did you believe in that moment when you snapped and yelled at the kids because they kept sinning in the same way again and again and again and nothing you try is changing their behavior. What, what did you believe in that moment when, when you got into yet another fight with your spouse about money? What, what do you believe about God after, after years of chronic illness or infertility? What, what do you believe about God when you lose your job again or you wind up in the hospital again? What do you believe about God when someone who says they love you seems hell-bent on destroying their life and hurting you and everyone around you through the choices they're making? What do you believe about God when you've been praying for him to save your spouse for 30 years and they still show no interest in spiritual things? What do you believe about God when all your coworkers are slandering and gossiping and lying about you and destroying your reputation? What do you believe about God when you're 32 and everyone but you is married? Friend, in those moments and, and a thousand more like them, you need to hear the Lord saying to you and gently challenging you, my child, is anything too hard for me? Look in my eyes. Is anything too hard for me? Because here's who I am. I'm the God who spoke the universe into existence with the words of my mouth. I'm the God who delivered my people from slavery in Egypt, who parted the waters and made Jericho crash to the ground. I'm the God who roars in the thunder. I'm the God who directs the lightning. I'm the God who sent my people into exile. I'm the God who redeemed my people from exile. 
I'm the God who raises kings and removes kings. I own all things. I fill all things. I reign over all things. My plans are perfect and my purposes will prevail. Why? Because that's what it means to be God. I am who I am, says the Lord your God. Nothing is too hard for me. Nothing is too hard for me. You think something's impossible? You think something's improbable? You think there's no way that can happen? Not after this long, not not after what they said, not after what I did. Think again, Christian. Think again. Nothing is too hard for the Lord. He demonstrated his power by by giving Abraham and Sarah a son. But do you realize that was just the beginning? One day, God demonstrated even greater fullness of his power in giving us his son. Himself. I gave you my own son. I came to you clothed in human flesh. My life on earth was a testimony to my power. Okay? My death on the cross was a decisive revelation of my power. My resurrection from the grave proved that nothing, absolutely nothing, even death itself, could hold me down from the grave. The power that raised my son is working in you right now, Christian. Look at me. Look to Jesus. Look at Jesus. Because there is deliverance and redemption and healing and hope purchased for you in him. Don't say something's too hard for me. Nothing is too hard for me. God is so kind, friends. He's so kind. Because he, he sees our unbelief, right? He rebukes, he corrects our unbelief. And then he speaks words of Repeated, repeated promise that nurture your faith. He's firm, but he's gentle. He's honest, but he's faithful. He's not like us. He grants us the gift of his presence. He grants us the gift of his promise. Promise of power more than anything else. A promise of power to deliver you, to provide for you, to keep you from stumbling all the days of your life. And so this is, this is my prayer for you as your pastor, okay? I'm going to go with Paul on this because he knows what he's up to. My prayer, church, is that you might know the immeasurable greatness of his power toward you who believe. According to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ, when he raised them from the dead and, and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places because that power, the power that is at work in you, is able to do far more abundantly than all your little tiny creaturely brain could ask or imagine. And those are the gifts. His presence, his promise. So what's the claim? What's well, simple, really. The God who sees you, who knows you, who is with you, and for whom nothing is too hard, is worthy of your absolute trust. He is worthy, friend. He's not begging. He's not 
desperately longing. He's not following the number of his Twitter followers. He's God. And you were made for him. You were made to trust him. And because he knows you, because he's with you, because nothing is too hard for him, he is worthy of your absolute trust in every situation. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you're kind. You're so kind. Thank you for the gift of your presence. Thank you for the gift of your promise. Thank you that you keep repeating your promise as many times as we forget it. And we pray, Lord Jesus, that today you would once again nurture our faith as you did Abraham and Sarah thousands of years ago and that your Holy Spirit would speak the same faith-building words to us right now. Why did you laugh? Is anything too hard for me? This morning as your people, we tremble to say, no, Lord. Nothing is. But we forget We're going to forget even before we walk out of here. And so we thank you that you are a faithful God who keeps running after us. And through your word, read and spoken by our brothers and sisters, gets in our face and calls us back to faith. We're grateful.